So he reached into the bin, pulled out the ticket, and looked at it and said, Wouldn't you know, my little boy Blue won the pony. And it killed the town for months, and that's where the phrase, Wouldn't you know it, Blue won the pony came from. (laughs) Got it. All right, sounds good. Let's start the show. For those who do not know... The biggest wrestling spectacular... Names from all over the country... Former champions, I've never seen anything like it. Eddie Graham, Florida Promotion, Vern Gagne, Superstar Billy Graham, Road Warriors, Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee, Bill Watts, Jerry Jarrett, Dory Funk, Harley Race, uh, Nick Bockwinkle. This is Cigars in Conversation with Derek St. Holmes, Esquire. Hello and welcome to Cigars and Conversations. I'm your host, Jay Gilkay, and I'm sitting down with a true raconteur in the world of professional wrestling. This man has shared the ring with a who's who of talent that ranges from Larry Zbysko to Greg Gagne to Sabu and CM Punk. A wrestler, manager, commentator, and trainer who's also contributed essays to wrestling publications and just recently headlined a sold-out show at the Turner Hall Ballroom in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. With 20 years of experience, he is a true renaissance man with unlimited knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, the incomparable Derek St. Holmes Esquire. Derek, how you doing? I'm a rocker, I'm a roller, I'm right out of controller. Fantastic. Hey, uh, how you doing, Jay? I'm good. I'm good. You know, uh, before we started, I was uh, talking to you about Highlander, the movie uh, with uh, yes. the McClouds. Which and, I've uh, never seen. Well, so I've never seen the full episode. You know, I, I wanted to bring it up because uh, I was thinking about something. I was watching it the other day. And uh, the opening scene is supposed to take place in Madison Square Garden. Yes. And it's a six man tag match with the Freebirds versus Greg Gagne, uh, the Tonga Kid, and Jim Brunzel. And um, as a kid, I remember watching that. I mean, so that was that movie took place uh, was from like 1986, I believe. Sure. And um, what was interesting about it to me, even as a kid at that age, when I was like 11, 12 years old, was the fact that they were selling it as Madison Square Garden. I remember thinking to myself, why are the Freebirds there? Why is Ganya there? Why is Brunzel there? (laughs) Um, Because, again, I was young and didn't really um, know what was happening at that point uh you know later you come to realize that they were actually filming it at the brendenburg arena which is now the izod center and that's in east rutherford new jersey um you know again playing off that supposed to be madison square garden and uh, uh you know as we familiarize ourselves with the business as you know we've studied it uh we find out that that was pro wrestling usa Right. That was putting that show on. Um, that was the Star Wars 85 show. Uh, yeah, so it, you know, kind of funny to think that as a kid, even being able to recognize that these uh, wrestlers were from different promotions. And it got me thinking, kind of leads us to today's topic, was territories. And uh, you know, my first question out of the gate for you would be, as a fan growing up in wrestling, when did you think or when did you realize that uh, there were territories and how they worked? Uh, well, that's two different questions right there. Uh, I first became aware of the territories when I started getting the after magazines in the mid eighties and you could read about these other areas and you learned how the guys would travel. They'd be here and then they'd be here and then they'd be over there. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. I grew up in the AWA region, of course, in the Midwest here. here. 
And so was very used to a certain style of wrestling. And then when the WWF started showing their TV there, it was glitzier and it was bigger and it seemed like a bigger deal. So naturally your eyes were brought to it. Of course, I was a wrestling nerd, so I wanted to watch every piece I could find. So I didn't mind watching the AWA. Right. And when did you actually, well, when did you start watching wrestling? What would you say? What age? Um, Infrequently as a kid because my dad watched it, but right about 13. Okay. Right about when Snuka came off the cage, which dates right. me horribly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. No. Yeah. You know, and I just, uh, again, I just think it's interesting. I, I remember back, and this story could be completely wrong, and it could just be me rewriting that revisionist history in my head. But I remember a time, the time that uh, Randy Savage took Steamboat out with the ring bell and crushed the larynx. Oh, sure. Um, sure. But I also feel like I remember going and seeing one of the after mags, and Steamboat went and worked somewhere down south during that time am i off on thinking that yeah yeah that was a different time he was lent out to world class for one of their big matches uh ricky steamboat was and that's because uh i believe george scott had taken over the booking in the world class area and brought in steamboat because he remembered him from the carolinas okay uh which is another concept of how the territory system worked that we get into where the actual number of guys that were on top and earning money um, could fit in two coach buses, really. Okay. And everything else was kind of more territorial, and you would you would see guys in certain areas, and for whatever reason, they didn't travel, whether it was family or didn't have the connection or whatever, and they would homestead in an area. Now, when we talk about the areas... Um, the territory system, I feel it's very romanticized right now because what it actually, what it was the illegal monopoly that it purported it wasn't. Sure, So sure. what you had was a group of gentlemen that essentially got together in the late 40s uh, and carved up the country into different sections, and then each one of them would have control of a certain area, and the other ones would come to their aid if there was any problems about running wrestling in that area. So so so-and-so would always get a piece of any wrestling that happened in the area. Now, the other thing that boggles my mind is how big of a business wrestling was that it was big enough to have this kind of machine behind it. Because right now, it all seems very loosey-goosey and hand-to-mouth. Right, right. So, starting up... uh, well, yeah, let's let's maybe we should tackle this. Yeah. Um, we'll start if we want to go right into the uh, territories. Let's start east. We'll work east to west, um, and we'll start like northeast. Sure, Is the that northeast territory. Okay. Obviously, um, that was controlled by Vince Senior and the WWF or Capital Sports or whatever that conglomerate was called. Now that always had the advantage of being in the large population areas and had the huge buildings. So you had the huge buildings, you had all the press behind you. That's why it became a giant-type territory, because you had people in these far-reaching buildings that had to see the pantomime that was going on in the middle of the ring. So it was giants. It was the big, slower moves. It wasn't as much intricate mat work that you would see down south in the smaller buildings. Gotcha. So, and... uh, that area had its homesteaders at all the times. Like Vince, uh, well, he went for the he liked the ethnic. 
didn't well, he? As far as like, I mean, he went for the the uh, like the Pedro Morales or the um, yes that he liked to to go for somebody to almost to draw out of that community. Well, that that's exactly there. that's exactly what it was. He used Bruno to get the Italians. He used Pedro to get the Hispanics. Um, crowds weren't as good as they wanted, so they enticed Bruno to come back. Then they switched to the heel, but then he decided he wanted the All-American boy. That's where Backlund came from. Gotcha. And then that's where Junior took over after and, that. And not to get ahead of ourselves on this at all, but um, were there, uh, real briefly, and I know we'll touch on other territories, but were there other territories that uh, went after the ethnicity factor or the the cultural factor? I know that Bill Watts used Junkyard Dog. Oh, yes. Um, and, but I mean, it seems like the Northeast, was, that was very prevalent that this is what they were shooting for at that point. Well, yeah, but that's where the population center of that was. I mean, right. New York was the you know, the melting pot or whatever. Um, so you would go after you know different segments of the population like that. But the other shameful fact to remember is that wrestling has always been based on xenophobia. It's mm-hmm. always been based on us versus them, no matter what the us is. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, you'll see that and... Um, some of the more outdated promotional practices of the era, um, you would only have one of said ethnicity on your roster to pull them in. Okay. Because then they would be the gimmick as opposed to having several, then it waters down. Sure. Okay. You know, so no, that makes sense. I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's good or it's bad. It's just, that's, that's how it was. I mean, wrestling has always been lowbrow entertainment. So you'd be able to draw from that. Right. And then, so with, with Vince senior running, what kind of television did they have or how was their exposure besides live events? Um, I'd like to go through the, the regions first and then explain how television was used for sure. Uh, because in a lot of these territories, the the long time we'll go through it, but the long time promoters got in on the ground floor with television, and it was really the vision of what television was that spurred the business of wrestling and spurred and enabled the territory concept. Okay, uh, much like I hate to put him over, but you know Zuckerberg with Facebook, he somehow saw what that was going to be, and I, I right. mean, I'm not, I'm, no, no, I'm absolutely. not trying to put over a corporation. I'm just saying that in the visionary of what the infrastructure was turning into, of how it could be used to sure, further no, work. no, that makes perfect sense. Okay, uh, because it was also very cheap entertainment, but we'll get into that as we right. out. So. Um, Started off with Vince. Then as we move down the coast, we get into, what is that, the Virginias? Yes. And Carolinas. Uh, the, that whole area was Jim Crockett promotions. They had three states tied up. Now, Jim Crockett was the guy that ran it, but that was also accomplished through the use of sub-promoters, again, with this territory concept. You had people that owned the own the company, but in every region there would be a sub-promoter that essentially ran the shows, and then the booking office would send their talent out to those shows. Right, right. No, and that makes sense. Now, correct me if I'm wrong on this as well, I uh, did uh, Jim Crockett Sr., uh-huh. um, and when they were running in the Carolinas in that like Atlantic region, uh, it was a lot of tag team-based wrestling. Yes. Okay, and that was kind of their thing for a while. Yeah, that was their thing for a very long while because uh, one of their longtime bookers used it to keep himself in the in the spotlight. 
Okay, gotcha. Um, and then I believe it was George Scott again when he came in, brought in Johnny Valentine, started booking him in these long singles matches, which turned off the territory and the crowds dipped down for a second. But he said, just wait, let it catch, let it catch. And once it caught, suddenly it was you know, bigger than it had ever been where they still had tag teams, but the emphasis was on these like long, hard matches between Johnny Valentine and Wahoo McDaniel. Sure. You know, so that's, that was the specialty in that area is being able to get the quick in and out tags. Right. Everything like that, or else you had to get beaten up by Johnny Valentine. Well, I thought it was funny. Um, you know, the more you learn about the business as you go along. And I remember as a child, Oh, the Crockett cup, the Crockett cup, Uh always talking about the Crockett cup. Um, but again, as a, a dumb kid, not understanding the lineage or just the history of where that came from, not understanding why they were doing this tag team tournament. Oh, I thought they explained it because they didn't. They have Francis Crockett. I oh. was a dumb kid. That okay, fair paid enough. Attention. Fair I mean, enough. I'm, I'm going to be honest. Oh, I mean, no, it was just I was, like I was a touch older. So Dusty I was and Nikita together. I'm in. Woo, you know, I'm ain't. like, all right, done One deal, ball, baby. Right, One right, ball. yeah. So. one thing i love about wrestling is the fact that people can quote individual lines like the hard times promo oh yeah oh yeah yeah i know what you're talking about absolutely um so we're getting down so the there was an emphasis on speedy scientific wrestling in the carolinas i also feel that was very much i can't quite define it as the or wrestling style of the territory system but it was very much an emphasis on ring work and realistic um we shoot down past Atlanta for a second and get to Florida. The Grams. Yes. Uh the Grams took the territory from Cowboy Latrol, but Eddie Graham was a big believer in amateur wrestling. Okay. Uh he also understood how to get his wrestling promotion over within the community, so he was very involved in boys clubs and you know, troubled kids ranches and everything like that. Sure. So wrestling and his, his wrestling style was presented in a very no nonsense, scientific, believable manner. Everything made sense about it. Consequently, wrestling had a very high, uh, standing in the public in Florida. Well, you know, and it's interesting too, when you, you, you talk about it that way, and then you think about Dusty coming in, Kevin Sullivan coming in, and getting over the because right. Sullivan doing the satanic gimmick was that was in Florida. Well, yes, that was in Florida, but also remember that was in what eighty three, eighty five. Sure. But uh, you just There's, think of that progression like, of the business and how you know. Well, there was always characters though, right? There was always character, and this that's one of the advantages of the territory system. Um, take a break from our tour of the country to explain when the territory system was in play you were able to control the media that the people received about your territory. So people in that area thought that was the only wrestling that was out there. Right. And these men just came and disappeared, and what is all of this? But there was no way, there was no information available about it. It was still very missing. All you had was the magazines, possibly newspapers, and what they wanted to tell you. Well, what do you think about that, though? Because I think that that's kind of amazing. Yeah, that they're able to do that. I mean, I understand we're in this technology age now. We've got Google, we've got the internet, and everything's fantastic. But to think about, yeah, that there was a time where you could just completely isolate and be this insular little wrestling promotion, or not even little, a big one, uh, in Florida or somewhere else uh-huh. in the country, and people would just not even be aware that there's other things going on. I think that's an incredible thing for them to be able to do. Yes, and... 
the territory system allowed them to control not only the media you received, but to quash any possible new contenders that would come in. Now, there was quote-unquote indie style or outlaw, outlaw wrestling right. available you know, all the time, but the talent was really bad. They never had TV. They would get starved out. And there were some... You know, some aggressive business practices, like we're going to stack up a card against you on the same night you're running, or less savory practices, you know, burning down buildings, stealing stealing television stations, setting, sure. up, setting up the opposing baby face in a compromising hey, it's position. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, all, it's wrestling, and it's always sleazier than you can imagine. Henry Garrett was born and raised in 1930s Harlem in New York. As a child, self-preservation quickly became a top priority as he navigated the rough-and-tumble streets of his local neighborhood. So much so that at the young age of 13, Henry began to train in powerlifting, bodybuilding, and karate to defend himself. Hank, as he became known, progressed from working out in a homemade gym to working out at the local YMCA. From there, he began competing in bodybuilding and powerlifting contests alongside older teens and 20-somethings until 1948 when he was declared winner of the Junior National Olympic Powerlifting Competition. Later that year, while training at the Y, he was approached by another weight trainer and educated on the virtues of becoming a professional wrestler. Garrett was introduced to veteran grappler Bibber McCoy, who helped train the muscular upstart and even went so far as to set up a meeting with New York promoter Toots Mond. So began 17-year-old Hank's in-ring career. He soon started working at the local New York and New Jersey arenas, billed as Hank Daniels, the Minnesota farm boy. This was an interesting moniker, seeing as he had never set foot in Minnesota up to that point in his life. Shortly thereafter, Garrett was shipped off to California, he dyed his hair blonde, and he began wrestling full-time for the World Wrestling Organization. Garrett wrestled many of the great names from that day and was known as a good hand in the ring for visiting champions. Hank recalled that one time when the Minnesota farm boy was set to wrestle Killer Vladek Kowalski in California, Killer picked me up at the airport and he couldn't have been nicer to me for the entire car ride. We got in the ring and he proceeded to slap me across the face to open the match. I was pretty taken by this unexpected move, so I banged him with my best forearm, but it didn't even move his feet. Needless to say, I don't remember the rest of the match, but later in the locker room, Kowalski said to me, Hey Hank, why did you keep running past me in the ring yelling out, Mama, Mama? The confidence that Hank gained from working in the wrestling business and his success as a champion powerlifter led Garrett to pursue another passion for entertainment, stand-up comedy. Following a short time of honing his skills in local establishments, young Garrett began rotating his evenings inside the squared circle as the farm boy and out in front of the microphone as funny man Hank Garrett. Despite five years of competition against many wrestlers, including legendary stars such as Lenny Montana in The Godfather, Baron Leone, wrestled Thez, and Mike Mazurki, president of the Cauliflower Alley Club, Hank hung up his wrestling trunks for good made his way to the Catskills and the Borschbelt, hey, to concentrate on his comedy routine. A great storyteller with a wealth of dialects, Hank cultivated his signature clean comic routine, working as an opening act for such greats as Tony Bennett, Jerry Vale, and Della Reese. He holds the unique distinction 
of being the first Anglo comedian to ever grace the stage of the Apollo Theater near his childhood home in Harlem. While his wrestling career was short in comparison, his acting career was not as he found himself getting his big break in 1961 as Officer Ed Nicholson on the popular sitcom Car 54 Where Are You? Since then, Garrett has worked steadily in Hollywood for over 50 years with appearances in such movies as Serpico, Death Wish, The Amityville Horror, and Baby Geniuses. He has appeared on numerous television series including Kojak, Full House, and Max Headroom, as well as contributed voice acting for the popular children's program G.I. Joe, The Real American Hero. Perhaps Garrett's greatest personal achievement was in the movie industry was winning the New York Film Critics Award for his role in Three Days of the Condor. Surprisingly, Hank, who often played the heavy, was not always on the receiving end of ill-fated stunts as he's jokingly lamented. I never recall hurting anyone as a wrestler, but I accidentally broke Robert Redford's nose during the filming of Condor. From a young tough on the streets of Harlem to a success on the big screen, Hank Garrett has carved his way through many facets of the entertainment industry. He's a member of the National Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame and a recipient of the Senator Hugh Farley Award, a distinction presented to a wrestler who has made significant contributions to society outside of the ring. In the end, perhaps it was his friend of 50 years, Gene LaBelle, who said it best. Hank has been outstanding in every facet of his professional life and as a person. I think the greatest of him. As we move, uh, as we're moving across the United States, and you just hit Atlanta. Do we want to go a little bit north of that? Do we want to talk Tennessee at this point? Okay, yeah, sure. We can jump in Tennessee. That's what uh, Nick um, Ulas and Roy Welch. Yes, yes. Uh, the Welch family is one of the fascinating subjects in professional wrestling because the Welch family tree basically has roots all over the South. So this goes into wrestling being a closed society and the actual number of people are very small. Like in the South, the Welch family was in the NWA, but then they also had roots all over the place in different promotions and different workers. So okay. at, at, long, at some point, like all those, all those guys were related to each other somehow. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, uh, I'm sorry. One concept I forgot to bring up was that in a lot of promotions, the, character of the wrestlers was often determined by the the promoter's uh, personal style oh okay uh eddie graham very into the amateur style um so that's why there was an emphasis on the scientific method down there uh we get to tennessee and especially when jerry jarrett was the he took over as the booker in the early 70s um he was a a, a smaller smaller skinnier guy that liked to brawl and had a lot of blood in his matches. Sure. So that's why you had that style develop in Tennessee. Um, now, was it between Goulas and Welch, which one was the one? Was there one that was more domineering than the other? I've heard that uh, Goulas was a bit of a uh, tyrant, for lack yes. of a better term, but Welch was actually the one calling the shots behind the scenes more so. Yes, very much so. I first uh, started reading about this in a book, Everybody Down Here Hates Me by Pat Barrett who changes the name of everybody, but he calls the guy like Walsh and the Greek. So you can kind of figure <laughs> it out. Huh? What? Uh, maybe. Um, the 
that that booking office um, had huge reach throughout the South. And again, um, as part of the territory system, one of the things a lot of the owners did in that area was paid off the state commissioners. Wrestling was still controlled by state commissions, and if you wanted to run a show, you had to get a license. Okay. And the wrestling state commissioner was oftentimes just a political appointee and could be easily be swayed with gifts of whatever. Again, remember, illegal monopoly. <laughs> this right. Is, this right. is how it was able to do. Right. So he would have the state commissioners in his pocket for, say, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Alabama. And somebody would want to run a show, they'd go to this uh, go to the licensing agent who would then call the boss and either give him a yes or a no. And that's how you would get in. Oh, okay. Um, so that's how they were able to control all these areas. And as, as they had control of being the only ones officially running, then it was easy for them to get television. Now, especially in the Tennessee Territory, that was split up into several... I mean, everybody looks back and say, oh, we're watching the Memphis show. Well, remember, that's only at the end of when people had VCRs. Right. There was countless, countless... It used to be every every with the possibility of Sunday and every day there was wrestling going on somewhere in the United States. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Because what you would do is you'd get television in a certain place. Then you try and get a good three to five towns around that area and you develop your circuit. Now you could do this down in the hinterlands of Alabama if you could get it together. And then you join the booking office of Gullis and Welch and give them whatever they want. Now their business practices, they'd probably starve you out and take it for themselves, but that's, right. that's how it would be structured like that. So the area promoters would set up their little towns. They would all feed into the booking office. The booking offices were all owned by NWA members. Then the NWA was covered by the president who for the longest time was Eddie Graham. Right. So that's why you had to get over in Florida in order to be considered for the NWA title and everything because these men would go into a room and vote on who the, their next champion would be. Okay, gotcha. Um, this, this is all a greatly simplified No, absolutely, this, absolutely. So. Now, and so something to that I've always found surprising was, uh, especially in Memphis, were they running every week at Memphis Coliseum? Was there a, were they pretty much going every, I mean, they at were doing south Cause they started at the Ellis auditorium. Well, cause they were doing the circuit, but I feel like just from watching the show and, and, you know, and stuff yeah. that I revisited, I felt like they were running in Memphis once a week and not just television. I mean, like, was there an event that they were doing that frequently or? Yes, absolutely. They, wow. That was a, a weekly circuit. That's it, it. I just find that amazing just for the sense that you think about how um, fickle people are now mm-hmm. and um i don't i can hardly keep up with a sitcom <laughs> once a week you know i've got five episodes of the walking dead on my dvr right now that i haven't made it to how am i going to make it to wrestling every monday night exactly and that's one reason why wrestling doesn't work in that in that structure anymore because there are so many entertainment choices yeah it used to be like, i remember when you had like six channels on the tv so again Right. That's the only, your only media. You're either going to wrestling or you're snapping beans with grandma out in the field. (laughs) Exactly. I think that's the, right. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, But related to that, you had that one hour of wrestling a week. Sure. Sure. You know, and unless you were well off, you didn't have a way to tape it. So like, oh, did you see what happened last week? You talk about it with your friends and blah, 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 blah. Right. Which I know that's a whole nother topic for a whole nother time on the show. But I always think about the, um, 
something like Memphis, where I think the TV played such a big part in, I mean, it plays a big part everywhere, but I just really, people were just hanging on that product in Memphis when it was on. And I just, I was always curious why they never did the show multiple times. Like, you know, if it's show aired on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday morning, why they didn't re-air it later in the week. Maybe they did. I don't know. I, I just always thought that was interesting. Well, that would always, de- that would depend on the station. Now, getting back to people getting in on the ground floor with television. Sure. Uh, it used to be television studios were looking for things to fill their air. Right. So, and wrestling was cheap. Wrestling was cheap. I mean, it was one camera. You pointed at it. So ha, this is how we get into studio wrestling with Jim Barnett. We'll get to we'll that get later. There. We'll get there. Yeah, we'll get yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. yeah we've, got, we've got a lifetime okay, to get there. Okay, so we've got Memphis. Uh, we've done Memphis. They're the smaller, more brawling style because that's the that's how the promoter booked it, and that's that's how it was there. Uh, Memphis was also always known as the armpit of professional wrestling because they would do things like bring in immigrants and right. like underpay them or you know just notorious for how poorly they treated their their talent but they were the ones in charge so well that's and how they... wasn't there um i forget was it uh um is it was it yamamoto that was there Tojo? Um, Tojo, Tojo Yamamoto. Yamamoto. Yeah. Uh, and he was responsible for bringing in, like, Onita came in from when he was very young. Um, and some of the um, Japanese wrestlers had right. come in. And it's almost like they made their way to Memphis before, or if they even made it to anywhere else. They, they were in Memphis for uh, quite a stretch, it seemed. Right, because they'd get work there. Right. Now, uh, a lot of the Japanese wrestlers were brought up in the dojo system in Japan, which is another style that they have over there. Right. Um, they would be brought up to a certain point, but then sent to the United States so that they could comb the territories and develop their personality and come back as a superstar. Gotcha. Right. right. So that was very common. So they'd have to work the, right. forget, forgive my phrase, the shit territories to get that. Sure. <clears throat> and so again, Memphis, we'll get, we'll cover that yeah. at a different time. Cause even that's interesting to me too, finding out like which Japanese promotions worked with which companies and territories and whatnot and all that when it came to the United States. But again, that's, that's neither here nor there right now. Right. We'll keep moving. Uh, uh, Alabama area, <clears throat> excuse me, extension of the Memphis style. I believe they were owned by the Memphis office. Uh, when you get over into Arkansas and Louisiana, that was owned by Leroy McGurk for the longest time, right. which then went into Bill Watts. Now, Leroy McGurk was a smaller um, a smaller amateur guy. I believe he may have been Olympic level, but he was a shooter, So he, and they also had Danny Hodge there. So... They liked, uh, it was also a very rough area to live, so they liked the smaller scientific shooter guys, but they also liked the big, ugly monsters because it was it was a hard life in Alabama. Right. Um, again, uh, long drives, poor pay, but it was a place to go for a while. And so how did it was first, um, was it NWA Tri-State before it was Mid-South? Yeah, yeah, I believe, yeah, Tri-State... Tri-State was Leroy McGurk, and right. then Bill Watts came in. And now when Bill bought, Watts, he, well, yeah, he bought from McGurk. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it okay. somehow transferred ownership. Sure, sure. Um, but when he came in, he was a big, you know, a big muscle-bound jock that liked big tough guys. So he wanted his baby faces big and his tough guys even bigger and uglier. Sure. And ran that style until he was having difficulty drawing. So he asked uh, Jerry Jarrett and I think Lawler to come in 
um, and look at as just, hey, look at look at my TV, look at a few of my house shows, tell me what I can do to make more money. And this is an off-color story. Are we allowed to go on this? By all means. Because I love it. Um, so he, he went in and he's like, well, you've watched my show. What do you think? And Jarrett looks at him and says, Bill, where are all the blowjobs? He's like, well, you're from Tennessee. Don't you have your sister for that? He's like, no, you don't have any young, good-looking guys that are going to bring in girls because when you bring in girls, you're going to start drawing all the guys that want to come in and meet those girls. So you need to... Uh, entice different parts of your population in order to draw your house and that's what led to the talent swap between memphis and uh mid-south whatever it was called there that's when like rock and roll express was brought in jim Cornette, the midnight express uh memphis got i don't know king kong bundy and maybe rick rude sure i'm not sure where he was but i mean right it it was it was a trade for talent uh but it introduced a different aspect into that presentations that it drew a different part of the population so 1979 bill watts actually buys tri-state from mcgurk first thing he does he changes the name to mid-south first thing he does and then he withdraws from nwa yes um does he withdraw from nwa because he forges the alliance with memphis or is there, does he feel like, is he just that comfortable or is he that comfortable or cocky in what he has that he thinks he can uh, survive on his own? Well, multifaceted question as, as with every That's wrestling That's the question. way I like to do it. Um, he's confident that he can draw in his area without the added enticement of bringing in the NWA champion. So now the NWA, as we go through all these promotions, we we reference the NWA. And everybody's like, oh, I remember when so-and-so wrestled for the NWA and blah, 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 blah. That's not quite how it worked. The wrestlers didn't belong to the NWA. The promoters belonged to the NWA. Right. So the like wrestlers wouldn't wrestle in the NWA. They would wrestle for the NWA uh, being one of these these promoters so the the national wrestling alliance was actually uh the promoters together not the wrestlers so the wrestlers were wrestling in nwa approved territories as opposed to wrestling in the nwa now this is a governing body Uh, from what i understand and this is in gary hart's book and numerous other books uh, they would meet once a year. They would have a meeting where the owners and the bookers and whatever guests they want would have a meeting about directions of the business. Again, wrestling right. was big business, so it was organized. These meetings were overseen by the president, who was Eddie Graham or whoever, or Fritz von Erich, who was ever in charge. And then the notes were taken by the secretary. Jim Barnett was officially the secretary of the NWA. The, the function of the president, in addition to managing the business of the, you know, the organization, was to book the president or book the champion. So if you wanted dates on the champion, like uh, I, I need I need three weeks with the champion later this year. It's like, OK, he's over. He's here. And then you would take and construct and write your television around that champion coming in and build up your feud so that you could use the prestige of this recognized leader of the group to try and up your people's uh, contribution. Now, the role of the champion coming in was to put over put over that local talent enough that they would be elevated but still leave with the belt. So that's why 
he also had to be able to protect himself against a double cross for the longest time. So that's why they had people like Fez and race in there. Sure. And that, you know, speaking of Harley race, so, um, race was recommended by Bob Geigel uh-huh. to come in. That was kind of a, his boy, uh-huh. I guess, as far as that works. And so, um, let's move into like the Bob Geigel sure. central States. Sure. So area. that would be the Iowa, like northern kansas iowa nebraska area it wasn't very well populated but geigel was the promoter they had central states promotions out of kansas city missouri right so they also had a weekly loop that they would do but one part of their loop every two weeks was st louis now everybody talks about st louis and sam muchnick right the chase right muchnick didn't have a territory he had one town right so he was the president before uh eddie graham and stuff so he was you know the longtime president so he oversaw all this thing so that's why he had the prestige and ran this one town and he controlled the media and how wrestling was presented in that town and had a stellar population in that area yeah uh also he actually eventually uh, he sold out to race and geigel i think it was right yeah right because he had he wanted to retire right uh very similar is the promoter paul bosch who had houston uh, Houston was actually part of the Texas, uh, Texas territory, Texas booking office, but Bosch would also supplement his cards with outside talent that he would bring in. So he would pay part of the card to the booking office there and keep the rest of it to himself. Uh, Central States, again, Bob Geigel, tough ex, uh, collegiate wrestler, um, liked that close style also was required to have it because of the wrestling background in, you know, areas like Iowa where people could recognize what was going on. Sure. So they closed a real, uh, worked a real close, tight style. Well, it looks like we're going to pump the brakes and stop right here for the time being. We're going to continue on next week with the topic of territories in the United States. This has been Cigars and Conversations with Derek St. Holmes Esquire. Uh, I'm your co-host, Jay Gilke. I uh, want to thank Kyle Arpke, our sound engineer. Thanks, Kyle. Yes, and um, we will see you next time.